Smith & Wesson sales plummet, plus a conversation with Georgetown professor William English on his groundbreaking new survey of American gun owners. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Uh, if you want to check out the top stories of the week in gun politics across America, uh, all the biggest stories, one email, and it's free, and you'll have you'll have a good uh, idea of what's going on across the country. Uh, and if you want to support our our work, our sober, serious approach to journalism, you can also buy a membership, uh, which will get you exclusive access to hundreds of pieces of analysis and special reports that you can't get anywhere else. Uh, you'll also get access to this podcast a day early and the opportunity to appear on the show in a member segment. Uh, so make sure you head over and check out our membership options today. This week, we have uh, Professor William English from Georgetown, who is on to talk about uh, a really fascinating survey that he conducted. Uh, it's really the largest survey of gun owners ever done uh, that has some really incredible findings that are not getting much attention to this point. Welcome to the show, uh, Professor English. Uh, can you just tell people a little bit more about yourself before we begin? Yeah, Stephen, thank you for having me. Um, so I'm a professor at Georgetown in our business school, and we have a department of strategy, economics, ethics, and public policy. Uh, this is a place I was really happy uh, to land in 2016, in part because um, the department is so interdisciplinary and that reflects a bit of my own interdisciplinary backgrounds and interests. So my PhD is in political science, and uh, that's a discipline that allows me to both um, think broadly about issues in political theory, history, uh, problems of governance, security, uh, but I also have a background in math and economics, and uh, it's a discipline that allows me to do empirical social science work. Uh, policy evaluation, and uh, uh, the business school has been a great place to be able to do both of those. Um, but since a fairly young age, I've been interested in uh, what I might call the science and theory of the Second Amendment. Uh, mm. And the last year or two, I've been working on a book project where I'm trying to think about, you know, both the, the, the historical um, and social theory, social science uh, aspects of, of gun debates, um, but also trying to evaluate the empirical literature as it exists today to, to really hone in on sort of, you know, where are the most interesting differences in our assessment of sort of current gun use, current gun abuse, uh, gun ownership trends, gun, uh, you know, uh, uh, distribution patterns, and see if we can set, shed some light uh, from a social scientific view uh, uh, on just the, the reality of, of how guns are, are used and owned in America today. So this survey was conducted uh, in 2021, and uh, the attempt was to make it uh, the, the largest survey of gun owners yet done, uh, particularly so that we could get statistically informative information in all 50 states. So mm. that, this was sort of the, the initial ambition. And just to put this in context, uh, probably the last survey of this uh, scope was done back in 1994, uh, Phil Cook and Jens Ludwig. Uh, did, did a you know a very classic, well done survey uh, of gun owners, uh, the types of guns they owned, of the reasons for owning guns, and uh, that's a study that gets cited all the time. But it's it's now you know more than a quarter century old, and, and right. there have been a number of more recent surveys. Um, but I, I saw an opportunity here to uh, you know do a survey that was both statistically informative across all states 
and drill down to many details that aren't asked in, in sort of conventional just ownership surveys at the highest level. You know, do you own a gun or not? And the attempt was to be able sure. to say something more about um, uh, actual gun ownership and use patterns that are relevant to many of the, the debates we're having today. Yeah. And so, so let's start with some of those top lines that you found in the survey. This was 16,700 uh, gun owners that were identified and, and you asked them a series of questions. And some of the biggest takeaways, I think, are, um, you know, for, we've got uh, the diversity, the increasing diversity of gun ownership in America, um, the uh, popularity of gun carry among gun owners, and then uh, especially the def- the number of defensive gun uses per year. This has been a long, long-term conversation or debate in the United States surrounding guns. This is one of the key uh, areas that people debate over whether it's worth owning guns or not. Uh, you know, is what, a lot of that comes down to how how realistic is it that people will actually defend themselves with guns? And and a lot of the data on that, as you just noted, there is from 30 years ago. And um, it's still the center of our debate today. But your survey found um, that there were more than 1.6 million defensive gun uses per year in the United States. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And and I'll, maybe I'll talk about each of those observations sort of in turn here. Uh, the, the first thing I noticed, you know, you're always comparing, you know, how does your survey match up with other surveys that are recent, but also how have things changed over the last, you know, two or three decades? And uh, I was really encouraged the sort of top line results of the survey matched very well other recent done surveys by Pew uh, and, and others, Gallup, uh, in terms of how many people own guns. But one thing we, we've noticed, if you compare back to, say, the 1990 surveys that we see, is that gun owners have become way more diverse. Uh, so the, 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 the numbers of, of Hispanics, of Asians, uh, of Blacks, and of women who are owning firearms are all up uh, dramatically from where they were 20, 30 years ago. And that was that's sort of interesting, you know, just as a top line result, because uh, I think a lot of our perceptions are end up kind of rooted in these old surveys from decades ago. And, and really, the patterns of gun ownership have, have changed fairly significantly over the last uh, two or three decades. Uh, yeah, and, that, and I would say too that that also um, it confirms some recent you know uh, data that we've got from sources that are um, you know a little bit less I don't know um, solid I would say you know like uh, for instance the National Shooting Sports Foundation which is the uh, the gun industry's trade group they do a dealer survey and that hmm. survey asks dealers to estimate how many of their customers, they are of, you know, uh, you know, one race or another. And that's how they uh, come up with their numbers for increasing diversity in, in gun ownership, which is obviously not as straightforward as just asking people themselves. Uh, but it seems that you, this survey where you do that does show that a similar result in uh, this increase in, in um, uh, black ownership, uh, female gun ownership, Asian American, uh, Latino American gun ownership. Uh, and so that's, it's really interesting in that regard that it's backing up some of these um, more informal uh, surveys. Yeah, and no, I think that's, that's exactly right. A lot of the stuff you you kind of would notice a bit if you're just looking at industry trends and, and sort of, you know, marketing trends and, uh, you know, casually going to you know, gun stores and stuff, you might see this, but, but it really is showing up in the data. So, uh, just you know, some overall numbers here. Uh, approximately one out of four uh, African Americans own firearms now, 
uh, even more than that, about 28% of Hispanics own firearms, uh, about 20% of Asians own firearms, and uh, for whites, it's around 34%. Uh, but we're, we're, that, that number has held pretty steady, but in all these other groups, uh, those are significant uh, changes, significant rises. And uh, what's even more interesting is some of these demographics of gun ownership um, are, are even more in greater parity when we start to look at things like um, AR-15 style rifle ownership and, and uh, magazine ownership and that sort of thing. Uh, but the other, big, the other big trend that showed up kind of on the surface very quickly, which matches sort of what's going on also on the legal side, is uh, compared to the 1990 surveys, it, uh, a lot of people who are saying they carry guns for self-defense. And, and we asked this question sort of in a few different levels and ways, uh, trying to ascertain if there are people that sort of ever carried a gun. Uh, and it might include on their, on their property. Uh, uh, you know, it might include in a, in a state well, where you're, you don't need a permit to carry. And uh, over half of gun owners uh, said that at some point they, they do carry a handgun uh, for personal protection. Um, and then we, we try to drill down to under, ascertain the frequency of carrying, you know, how often, for what purposes and whatnot. And, uh, you know, approximately, you know, we're getting, and I'll just get the number here uh, directly, but uh, something like, you know, 20, 30%, I'm going to pull this up uh, just so I have it in front of me, uh, of people are saying that they're actually, uh, you know, carrying with some frequency. And the other thing that was interesting is, uh, so about 35% of gun owners said that they had wanted to carry a handgun for self-defense in some circumstance where they weren't allowed to. And uh, sort of in the, in the light of the Bruin ruling that, that recently came out, I thought that was a kind of interesting uh, thing to note that there, you know, we've seen a lot of legislative change over the past two or three decades in terms of the right to carry in, in individual states. And uh, now the Supreme Court has affirmed that that, that is a, a more general right guaranteed by the Second Amendment. Um, so this, you know, that, that's definitely yeah. showing up in, in the data as well, that there's more people than two or three decades ago who were saying that they carry regularly uh, for right. the purpose and, of self-defense. And so that sort of implies as well that there's uh, perhaps going to be even more people carrying um, for self-defense in the near future because of because of Bruin. And uh, now, obviously, there's a lot of um, political uh, machinations that, that have continue to prevent many people in California and New York from carrying guns. Um, even in the aftermath of Bruno, it'll probably take a little while for that all to get sorted out. Um, but the survey seems to, you know, from what you're saying, it, it seems to indicate that there is even greater potential for Americans to carry, you know, a larger percentage to carry guns. Right? Yeah, that's right. And and so just to, to get the precise number, so it's about 35% of gun owners that report carrying a handgun uh, with some frequency. So that's saying they carry sometimes, often, or, or almost, or always. And, um, and that's you, like tens of millions of people, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, and we we estimate uh, also how many people are regularly carrying under a concealed carry uh, regime. And and th there's some states with now constitutional carry or permitless carry, uh, which is going to make this a little harder to estimate in, in years going forward. But uh, it looks like a, around 20 million Americans are carrying on a regular basis right now under this is in 2021 but carrying on a regular basis under a kind of permit uh, regime. So that's, uh, you know, that's approximately a quarter of gun owners. And uh, I suspect that, yeah, those numbers may go up uh, in the post-Bruin uh, period. Fascinating. And then, uh, and then as far as defensive gun uses go, you know, this is, this is a very core question in the gun debate. You know, how often do people actually use firearms to defend themselves? Because, 
you'll see estimates that are you know range across the spectrum from maybe you know tens of thousands of times a year up to 2.5 million times per year. Your survey uh, puts the number at 1.6 million. Can you just explain a little bit more about how you got to that number, how it's different from some of these other estimates, especially like some of the previous survey estimates, like the CLEC surveys in the 90s? Yeah, yeah. So uh, you know, one th- maybe the first thing to note is that uh, you know this estimate around you know, 1.6 million uh, is in line with some of these classic uh, surveys from, from a mm-hmm. decade or two ago, as well as some more recent surveys. Um, but one of the challenges with ascertaining defensive gun use is how you define that. So something that has shown up consistently in the literature, and it shows up in a big way in this survey, is that most defensive gun use, uh, you know, over 80% of the times that people are indicating they're using a gun to defend themselves, a shot is not fired. And uh, there's and, and what we wanted to do in this survey is really get at sort of any cases for which someone thought the uh, uh, a firearm was used in self-defense. And, and so we asked two sorts of questions. Uh, one was a straightforward question. You know, have you ever used a firearm to defend yourself? Um, and we explicitly excluded work uh, in the military or as a police officer or as a security guard. So we're, we're not interested in professional uses. Um, and if someone answered yes to that, then we asked them a number of detailed questions. You know, how many times have you used a gun to defend yourself? Uh, what sort of firearm did you use? How many assailants were there? Did you fire a shot? If you fired a shot, how many? Um, so we have some really granular data on that. And then as, as a separate question, because um, you can imagine other scenarios where you might you know, be on your property with a rifle on your shoulder, you know, on your land, and there's some dispute and, and somebody, you know, when they notice your arm, they, they politely walk away, or uh, maybe a friend comes to your aid uh, with a firearm that's displayed, but you didn't use it. So we have a different question asking about these more uh, sort of softer marginal cases where the presence of a firearm might have deterred a, aggression against somebody. Oh, so so that's, a, that's a separate question. But on the straight defensive gun use question, um, you know, we also ask, you know, did, did you brandish the firearm? Did you shoot the firearm? Did you, you know, verbally announce you had a firearm? So we have a breakdown of how these things happened. And um, what, what does show up is that, yes, in most cases... It's the, simply the brandishing of a firearm or uh, the knowledge that somebody has a firearm, the threat that is able to deter crime. Um, and so, you know, one thing this means is if you're trying to ascertain gun use, defensive gun use uh, through other measures, you know, there's a debate in the literature. Should you look at, you know, emergency room numbers, the amount of people who come in mm-hmm. with gunshot wounds? Uh, and on the surface of it, it, you know, those numbers, you know, are in the tens of thousands, uh, generally under 100,000. And the question right, yeah, is, you know, the common critique there is that survey-based estimates are overestimating how common these events are. And, and actually, <clears throat> before we talk a little bit more about the emergency room and some of the other ways people estimate lower rates of defensive gun use, um, one of the key critiques of you know the CLEC surveys and 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 uh, the other surveys from the '90s is that they you know they asked the whether or not you used a gun in self-defense in the past year. And so there was a lot of concern right. that people maybe overestimated how recently their, uh, you know, use of a, of a gun for self-defense is. Now you've addressed this concern in this survey, right? You yeah. asked this question in a different way. Yeah. And so this is, this is a really interesting sort of critique. It's, it's what social scientists are often kind of thinking about in subtle, sophisticated ways. And the argument is this, that if you have a survey that says, that asks, you know, did you use a gun in self-defense in the last year? 
Uh, probably using a gun in self-defense is a pretty memorable thing. Like pe- That's going to stick in someone's memory. But right. the precise length of time that has passed, that might be a little fuzzy. So, you know, if somebody defended themselves with a gun the previous summer, we're talking in September right now, uh, you know, maybe that's actually 13 months away. But you might say, oh, yeah, I just, yeah, just last year I defended myself. Or maybe it's 14 months or 15 months. So the worry then is if you're then using this yearly metric to calculate defensive gun uses, you might have a lot of respondents that are that, that did use guns defensively, but used it slightly beyond that year-long boundary. And that's going to perhaps inflate the number of defensive gun uses that you're counting within a, a single calendar year. Right. So, uh, it's, you know, it's a plausible concern um, and, you know, a thoughtful thing to, to be worried about. So what we did in the survey is, is we asked if you've ever used a firearm in self-defense. So this is any time in your life. And uh, I do think these, those are memorable events. So there's something that somebody might remember, you know, even if it was five, 10 years ago. And, you know, if they ask, say that, you know, we ask also, you know, how many times has this happened? And we drill down on, on all those. And for each incident, we're asking uh, a whole bunch of detail. But what that means is that we get a, an overall report uh, for gun owners of how, how often or if at all they've used guns defensively. And what you can then do is back out in terms of the, you know, the life years represented uh, by the survey respondents in the survey and say, you know, how much does that actually amount to per year? So, what, you know, right. from what, what's indicated in our survey, it's, it's around 50 million defensive uses that we're counting. But that's, of course, right. over people who might be, you know, 80 years old uh, compared to, you know, 18 years old. So we're, we're actually then calculating based on the life years represented in the survey respondents, what does that look like per year? And, and it's, it's really interesting that when you back those numbers out, you end up with this estimate 1.67, which is very tightly aligned with prior estimates. And I yeah. should also note that it's, if anything, I think this is a conservative estimate because- Right, yeah, actually, let's talk yeah. about that real quick. Um, uh, well, one, I, you know, I do think it's fascinating that using a totally different methodology for estimating yearly defensive gun uses, you still come out to uh, what is in the range of those previous uh, survey estimates. Uh, so that's, I mean, uh, to me, that signals there's perhaps more credibility to these estimates that that um, this is how often uh, Americans say that they've used guns in, in self-defense. And um, uh, now it, it had, did come out on the lower end of that range because uh, the collect range was something between 1.6 and 2.5 million per year. But uh, can you talk a little bit about why that might be and why, as you just said, you think your estimate might be actually a bit of an undercount? Yeah. Yeah. So there's you know, two things that we can't capture in this survey. Uh, one is this survey is only going to those who are 18 and older. So, you know, certainly there, there's uh, many millions of uh, people under the age of 18 who hunt, uh, who are involved in shooting sports, uh, you know, you know, teenagers who are proficient in the use of guns and whatnot. And, and you do see reports in the news every so often of a you know, 14 year old, 16 year old, 17 year old who, who defends their family at home from an invader, or a robber, that sort of thing. So there might be some uh, defensive uses in that under 18 age group that we're not capturing. Uh, but the bigger the bigger issue um, that we can't get at with this survey is if somebody is not currently a gun owner, they wouldn't have been filtered into the, the full part of our survey that asks all these questions. But Kleck found something really interesting uh, in some of his early work, which is that a, a number of people who indicated that they'd used a gun in self-defense weren't personally the owners of that gun. So you might have a wife 
whose you know husband owns a gun. And in this survey, you know, the husband might indicate, yeah, I'm a gun owner. The wife would say, yeah, I'm not a gun owner. But the wife might have used a gun in self-defense uh, and somebody trying to break in the house. And that population, it was actually pretty large in, in some of Kleck's estimates, uh, up to 40 percent, I believe, mm. in one of his surveys where you had people who had used a gun for self-defense at some point in their history who weren't themselves personal gun owners or, or owning that particular gun. So that we're, we're also not able to capture that group. And uh, just as sort of a robustness exercise, if, if we go in and calculate uh, based on Klex estimates, uh, you know, how many people that might encompass that weren't in our survey, we, we do get up in that sort of 2.5 million range. So yeah. uh, so it is, you know, sort of all methods of triangulating this are coming up with, with similar sets of answers. And, uh, you know, there's other things going on in the background. Uh, you know, certainly a population has grown a bit in the United States in the yeah. last two decades, but also crime has come down uh, for most of the last three decades. It's, it's certainly coming up the last year or two. So that's why you might see a lower rate. Um, so you might see a lower rate. But you also have a higher population. So, but th- all these numbers are really, uh, you know, in the same neighborhood, which which does give us more confidence that um, that we're really picking up, uh, you know, something something real, a phenomenon that is persistent uh, over time and uh, really captures the behavior of uh, of gun owners in America. And again, and this is a sample of fifteen thousand, sixteen thousand gun owners uh, who are consistently reporting these sorts of uh, levels of self defense. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, the, just having another uh, very well put together piece of evidence um, to, uh, you know, to point to that's not 30 years old is, is I think, very important um, in this debate, because oftentimes the gun debate gets stuck 30 years ago with the same arguments over the same evidence. Uh, and we don't, we don't uh, update our... <laughs> Uh, what we're talking about very often. I mean, we're still talking about the Solvents ban that expired in 2004 um, and the same CLEC surveys that were from the mid nineties. And uh, although uh, one thing that you've seen recently uh, to get back to something we were talking about just a moment ago, you've seen a concerted effort, I think about among a lot of gun control advocates to challenge this idea that gun use is common for, for self-defense in the United States. And so they've taken a critical look at the survey-based results, um, and they argue that they're uh, overrepresentative. They overestimate how common gun uses are because um, looking at things such as news reports on uh, self-defense use of guns or um, emergency room uh, admittance for gunshot wounds uh, or uh, death certificates, uh, you know, the just the FBI's justified homicide uh, count is far lower than, of course, uh, 1.6 million defensive gun uses per year. And so they argue that these estimates are overblown. Um, what is it uh, that you would say to that that sort of argument? How, how do you approach that critique? Yeah. It, yeah. And so these are, these are good questions to ask, I think, um, because certainly if you have like a, a Hollywood view of, of gunfights and, and gun use, you know, you might think, you know, every defensive gun use uh, involves uh, a lot of shots and a lot of people hit and uh, and there'd be you know evidence of that and it'd show up in police reports. Um, what I think is really important to understand is that what what shows up on, in the media reports or what shows up in hospitals is, is a tip of an iceberg, but most defensive gun use, uh, according to this survey and others, uh, are incidents where a no shot is fired. And if you drill down on the circumstances for which a shot is fired, 
so this, you know, less than 20 percent, something like 18 percent or so. Um, then this raises the question, well, how often, well, first of all, how many shots are fired and how often would you expect, uh, you know, somebody to actually be hit uh, in that sort of exchange? And, and what's the nature of these exchanges? What's their purpose? Uh, it's fascinating when you, there's been a number of studies of police shootings and how often it is when, when, a, when a police officer pulls their firearm, is engaged uh, in a firefight and fires their gun, how often they hit their target. And, uh, and it might surprise sort of, you know, non, non-gun owners, non-shooters that uh, something like 65 to 85% of the time, police officers are, are not connecting. They're not hitting the intended target with a bullet. Um, but that's, you know, for those who shoot, it's kind of, well, yeah, it's, it's actually very difficult. You're under pressure. There's a lot of things going on. Um, and police officers also, you, you know, they're in the context of generally apprehending a suspect and they have to, you know, prosecute this exchange to its conclusion to, uh, you know, either, you know, the criminal might get away, but these are close quarters, intense, um, things that have to be, you know, you know, go to their ultimate conclusions. For a defensive gun use, uh, I think the, the the main objective is to to scare someone away, to to escape, to become safe, to not be a victim. And so, if right. you fire Just a single shot, attack, to stop the attack. So, if you fire a single shot, and that scares a person away, it, probably most intelligent criminals, if they see a gun or if they hear a shot, they're getting out of there. That that's a successful defensive gun use, but that's not going to show up. You know, certainly not in the hospital uh, if you don't shoot them, if you don't connect. Uh, it's not going to show up in media reports. It's not going to, you know, there's not going to be a police report filed in, in even some cases. Uh, uh, and so even in, if you kind of look at the numbers, if you're assuming that uh, individual, you know, citizen defenders are connecting in the area range that police do, uh, then you, the, the gunshot numbers that actually show up in the literature, you know, in the literature are, are right on target in terms of, uh, you know, you're talking something in, in you know, the, the tens of thousands, perhaps. Um, and, uh, you know, something like, you know, somewhere between under a hundred thousand people are showing up with gunshot wounds in, in hospitals and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So the, the numbers are definitely consistent with the, the survey results we're seeing, but the important thing to understand is first, how many defensive gun uses don't result in a firearm being fired at all, uh, of those in which a firearm is fired, the modal shot, the modal number of shots fired is one. And presumably it's because it's sufficient to deter an attack, to scare someone away. Um, yeah, almost 50%, right? Yeah, and I have to I'd probably go back and look at that numbers. But I yeah, believe you, the numbers were, uh, what, 87% didn't fire a single shot that's at all. Yes, yes. Uh, or 81 or 82%. Yes, this is like 40-something like percent fired one shot. And then, you know, after that, there was one one shot, or two shots was the next most common, then three shots, you know, and so forth. Yeah, yeah. And, the, the, you know, just uh, one other thing on the defensive gun use, because uh, this also kind of, you know, it might – be different than media perceptions is we were finding enormous representation across all groups in terms of defensive gun use. So it's not a particular subgroup that's uh, you know standing out here. Um, so just to run through some of the top line results here, um, you know about thirty percent of white gun owners say they've used a gun in self defense. Um, about twenty six percent of Asian gun owners say they used a, a gun in self defense. Um, and then these numbers are higher uh, amongst uh, some other minority groups, um, precisely because you might think they're they're more victimized by crime. So uh, about 44% of black gun owners have indicated defensively using a firearm. About 40% of Hispanic gun owners have indicated using a firearm in defense. 
And um, uh, for men and women, it's also not uh, that much different. It's certainly not as different as some of the surveys suggest in the 1990s. So about 34% of men have indicated using a firearm in self-defense, and about 20% of women have indicated using a, self, a firearm in self-defense. I, I should say gun, owner, gun, gun owning men and gun owning women. Um, and so we're seeing that the defensive gun use is something that's common across all sort of gun owning demographics, but it is heightened uh, precisely in those demographics that you might think are more victimized by crime, uh, you know, given their, their locations uh, you know, in high crime areas in the United States. Right, right. Yeah, that, that does seem to match up with the uh, statistics you find about, um, you know, murder victims and, and violent crime victims. So that makes makes a lot of logical sense as to why it would work out that way. Um, it's it's really important, I think, the, the, to talk about these new results, because, uh, again, like the core of the, the debate over guns in America is whether or not these are useful tools to protect people or whether or not they just put people at more risk to the harm themselves or others. That's the basic debate. I mean, obviously, there are other reasons to own firearms, you know, for, um, I mean, political reasons, the, the, the Second Amendment um uh, speaks directly to the idea of, um, you know, uh, the, an armed populace being uh, necessary to defend a free state. Um, and so, you know, it's not the only reason, but it is the main reason that we debate uh, in modern America is like, are guns actually used, useful for self-defense in a way that um, alleviates any downsides to owning firearms, uh, you know, or or to having firearms in society generally. This is a common core to what we talk about when it comes to firearm, firearm, firearm ownership. And uh, so having more data on this, especially data uh, that's very broad, um, is incredibly important. And, uh, you know, actually one area that I think is fascinating about all of this too, is uh, that you were able to get a representative sample of gun owners in all 50 states, which is something that I've never seen done before. Um, and frankly, is something that I've always had uh, concerns about when, when we talk about gun research, because a lot of it relies on estimates for gun ownership in different areas that just never seemed terribly reliable to me. Um, I think the RAND Corporation's, uh, their, uh, their estimate or the way that they calculate it uh, has become the most popular one in recent years, which involves national surveys of a couple thousand um, adults, not even gun owners, that show, you know, the gun ownership rate is something like 30%. And then they try to use that combined with, um, for instance, suicide data is a common metric that people will rely on for uh, measuring gun ownership in a given area. But, none of the, you know, those all seemed fairly uh, flimsy to me, or at least uh, questionable to me. Uh, and now you have this survey that has directly um, obtained an actual representative sample in every every state. Have you found uh, some differences between what your gun ownership estimate is in those states and what you commonly see through these other metrics? Yeah, yeah. This, this is a great question, and um, you know, it, it goes back. And I, sh I should mention. You know, one of the challenges with survey work historically is it used to be really, really expensive. So before the Internet, you know, you'd have a, a, an army of people calling people up on the phone, you know, random numbers across the United States, trying to get somebody to talk to you for a half an hour, an hour to go through this long question and answer uh, you know, survey. And, 
and uh, the, the the cost of doing that, but you know, both monetary and logistical costs were really high. And uh, one thing that has changed, particularly in the last decade, is we, we are much better, uh, through, you know, with the internet of being able to reach out to really large numbers of people, uh, also ensure representative uh, representativeness, and uh, you know, engage them in a way that sort of ensures that, you know they have the time and focus and incentive to sit down and answer questions. Um, so that it is one of the things I'm most excited about with this survey that it has such great uh, coverage across the United States and uh, and really statistically informative samples in all 50 states. Um, and as you say, you know, this 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 has historically been things we didn't have good numbers on. The the Rand paper, um, it, it's a it's a good first attempt, and and uh, you know they should be applauded to to for this uh, you know attempt to try to triangulate some of these estimates. But, you know, some of the things they use are things like uh, the number of guns and ammo subscriptions um, <clears throat> and you have this suicide rate uh, and you have hunting licenses. But of course, you know, hunting licenses are going to be very different across different states and different contexts and which states have a lot of, right. you know, hunters versus just you know recreational shooters. So, you know, on its face, there's a reason to think this is a you know, pretty loose uh, a methodological approach. And uh, th there's about six different papers I want to write from this survey. Uh, the, the paper out there right now is a top line result. There's a lot of things I want to delve into more deeply. And I will yeah, at one too, point. Honestly. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to at one point write write a um, sort of uh, a piece on the on the RAND where s some of the major large states we have some agreement on, but particularly the smaller states, I, I think their estimates are, are you know widely off. And uh, there, there's a lot of heterogeneity in, in their methods where at the extremes, uh, I think they really underestimate and overestimate. And I, I, I did some looking at this maybe a, a few months ago where some of the early estimates of state ownership, there were, there were points where like Hawaii was showing up a 33% ownership. And that turns out they, they had asked like three people in Hawaii and one out of three said yes. Right. And it's similar in Alaska. It's like they asked four people. And, uh, you know, we were, we were right. making and that's really the common loose. problem with a lot of these other yeah. estimates. It's like you just don't they're not asking a lot of people when you do a nationwide survey to get a random sample. You only need what 2,500 people or so right. uh, when you're talking about adults. But then you could try to drill that down to uh, what 33 percent of people who self-identify as gun owners. Then you're you're only getting a couple hundred people for the entire country, which is why your your sample size of 16,000 gun owners is such a game changer, at least in my view. Yeah, that, that, that's right. And that's that's uh, it's a really exciting thing. And I say that there's a lot of stuff that I haven't yet been able to analyze just uh, because of time and some teaching commitments and other writing commitments. But uh, eventually there, there will be a paper comparing and contrasting the RAND estimates. And I, I think this will be a major contribution because there's a lot of other studies people want to do that rely right. on sort of estimates of state level firearms ownership. And uh, and this can provide that. And so, you know, eventually. Yeah, this I mean, that's. That's been one of my long-running critiques of a lot of modern um, survey or a lot of studies that uh, look at whatever gun policy effects is they oftentimes are using fairly unreliable estimates for gun ownership rates wherever, you know, whatever area they're studying. Uh, you know, there might be exceptions to this, like California obviously has a registry, Massachusetts has a registry, so maybe they, you can get a little bit more um, precise estimates of gun ownership in a given area, but oftentimes they're relying on these sort of uh, um, uh, questionable tactics to determine gun ownership rates. And those are key to a lot of the conclusions that they're drawing. And so, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see perhaps like, you know, how some of these studies come out 
uh, with updated measurements of, of gun ownership that are in your survey. But uh, the other thing I wanted to get to before, you know, uh, is I don't want to take up too much of your time, but, but, but I do want to talk a little bit about um, what you found in terms of uh, the rate of ownership of some of the more controversial firearms and accessories out there, um, because you, you, this was also part of the study. Um, you know, uh, modern sporting rifles, assault weapons, whatever you want to call them, AR-15s and AK-47s, in other words, um, uh, as well as magazines that hold more than 10 rounds. That uh, uh, These are often the targets of uh, bans in, you know, deep blue areas, California, Massachusetts, New York. Um, and so you asked how common it is for people to own these, uh, which is obviously a pretty relevant thing, especially uh, in our new legal atmosphere the, since the Supreme Court's Bruin ruling. Right. Where that, you know, how common, uh, uh, a, really since Heller, how common a gun is or accessory is um, matters quite a lot to whether or not it's protected by the Second Amendment. Yeah, and this, this is something that kind of surprised me uh, just a few years ago when I started getting into this research uh, in more depth is we have all these public policy debates, um, but we don't always have kind of the, the, the precise data you'd want to inform those debates. And uh, this is the ownership stuff is, is sort of just an obvious example. So going back in the 1994 survey, uh, the Cook and Ludwig did, you know, they, they did drill down on a lot of questions of types of guns owned, you know, do you, uh, pistols, revolvers, shotguns, rifles. Um, my recollection is I don't believe they asked about uh, sort of AR-15, AK style uh, platforms in particular, uh, but this is certainly relevant today. So you get this question, you know, are, are AR-15 style rifles, these sort of exotic, uh, you know, rare things used by just a handful of gun nuts or are they, you know, the most common actually rifle in America that's, that's selling today? Are, are they are they widely owned? Are they widely used? For what purposes are they owned and used? And that was something I tried to get at in this survey. So, you know, asked a series of questions about about ownership, about use, about reasons people own them, and um, the uh, uh, you know sort of top line results here is that uh, you know these are very widely owned. So, on the, in the AR uh, AK platform style rifle. Uh, about 30% of gun owners, uh, and this is something like almost 25 million people, indicate that they've owned these firearms. Uh, that's a huge. That's a huge number. You know, one out of three gun owners uh, have owned, uh, you know, what commonly you know derided as assault weapons. Um, and and the reasons they own these are are you know things that might not surprise you. The, the, the most common reason is for recreational target shooting. Um, and second most common reason, uh, following you know almost statistically statistically indistinguishable, is home defense. Um, and uh, you know people people are using you know they're they're owning these guns, using these guns for for a variety of you know lawful purposes, and that that shows up in a big way in this survey. The other thing that's interesting is um, you know there was a narrative out there sometimes that it's it's just a a handful of people that own a bunch of these. Um, right. But but we're seeing now the I mean it's the com, com yeah, here. yeah the average you know owner owns one or two of these uh, something like ninety six percent of people own less than ten uh, who indicate ownership of these so you know the, these are it's not just there's a lot of them out there but they're they're owned fairly widely and this is also true when you break it down by by ethnic demographics so 
Um, you know, about a, a third of gun owners, white gun owners, own AR-15 AK-style uh, guns. Uh, about 34% of African Americans uh, own these own these rifles. About 30% of Asians, Asian gun owners, own these rifles. Um, and about 38% of Hispanic gun owners own these sorts of rifles. So, uh, and also male and female, it's about 36% of males uh, gun owners, but about 21% of female gun owners. So they, they really are, you know, widely used across all demographics, widely owned across all demographics. Uh, and that shows up in, in a very clear way in this survey. Uh, and similar sorts of findings for, for magazines. So, um, you know, some debate in some states about the capacity of magazines and we're, we're seeing that, you know, particularly with, uh, you know, the popularity of, of AR, AK-styled rifles, as well as just how uh, pistols have progressed over the last few decades, that, um, you know, about half of gun owners uh, own magazines that hold more than 10 rounds. Uh, this is extremely common. Uh, similarly, it's demographically, uh, you know, very well distributed across all different groups. And... Um, it's uh, you might think, you know, the, the magazine uh, as a complement of, of modern firearms, you know, the standard magazines that uh, that are used in firearms are often the ones that hold more than 10 rounds. So uh, so this 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 shows up as well uh, in the survey responses. It's not just concentrated in a few small groups, but it's a, a very wide pattern that you see ownership of these sorts of magazines. Yeah, and I think this is another area where your survey kind of. Uh lends credence to some other reports that have, have uh, pre come out in recent years. Uh, for instance, National Shooting Sports Foundation, again, uh, released a report just earlier this year that showed there were there have been 24.4 uh, million, uh, what they call modern sporting rifles, yeah. effectively, that means AR-15s and AK-47s, um, you know, in, circul in civilian circulation since 1990. Uh, now, that's that data is based on uh, actual, you know, uh, production records. Right. So how many have actually been made and imported and sold in the United States? So it's a little more solid than, than I would say the dealer survey is not the dealer survey. Obviously, the dealer survey is still a useful uh, tool and clearly uh, is backed up by what you uh, found in this um, in this um, direct survey. But but you know, this is another instance where you know what we're what we've been hearing. Um, from the industry uh, is in line with what gun owners are saying themselves when asked about whether they own these guns. Because like you said, that the number breaks down to something like, uh, you know, above 20 million people report owning these guns. Although that does give perhaps even more insight, because as you said, as the survey found, only most people own one or two of these uh, kinds of firearms. And that does, that math works out, right? If, there's 20 yeah. million people who own them and 24.4 million of them out, you know, in public hands since 1990. Well, that works out to not seven per person, right? Yeah. And I should mention, too, that <clears throat> we asked this question um, in a fairly broad way. So we, we, we used this. You know, we said, you know, AR-15 style platforms, AK platforms and, and other uh, guns that might be, you know, so-called assault weapons and that sort of thing. So we, we tried mm -hmm. to capture sort of. Anything that would be in, you know, publicly recognized as falling in these sorts of categories. So, uh, you know, uh, there's many other guns that would probably show up there. You know, Mini 14s, sure. FALs. Uh, if you think back to like the M130 carbine, there's something like six million of those produced uh, near the end of the Second War, uh, Second World War. And those are, you know, many of those in civilian hands. So there, 
you know, the, the AK AR-15 platforms, you know, there's production numbers just since 1990 in that 25 million range. Uh, but there's probably a, a number of other chunks of similarly styled semi-automatic rifles that, yeah. you know, might, you know, another 10, 20 you know, million of those sorts of things out there as well. Uh, so the, the numbers do all line up, like in terms of, you know, historical production numbers from the last century and general, you know, ownership uh, reports today and numbers owned. Um, but you do get a sense of just sort of how, how popular these are, how, how widely owned and used they are uh, that shows up in this survey. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, so this is part of a larger project that you're working on, as you mentioned at the beginning of the show. You're writing a book. Can you tell us a little bit more about what what's coming next uh, after, you know, you did this survey uh, last year, you updated it in May of this year with some more information. Where, where are you headed next on this? Yeah. You know, so I've probably been thinking about this project in some ways for like 30 years. Like this is, uh, um, you know, from an early age, uh, you know, it's, it's fascinating when you think about the second amendment broadly and just widespread popular ownership and use of firearms in many ways, America is pretty exceptional. Um, and it's an interesting, both like historical story of how we got to where we are. And it's, um, you know, partially rooted in the, in the history of English civil wars and our, you know, inheritance of, uh, practices, uh, from, uh, you know, English, uh, English law, as well as English military practice, uh, English defensive practice that, uh, you know, comes over and Joyce Lee Malcolm documents a lot of this in her book, uh, on the second amendment that's extraordinarily rich and interesting historically, but there, there's sort of these, um, you know, problems that go back to the, the origins of modern politics about, uh, you know, how, how is self-government possible? Uh, you know, how do you get security in a society? Uh, when you think about the Black Lives Matter protest, um, you know, on one level, it's, it's understandable. People are outraged uh, of the abuse of power that, uh, that police or, or state agents um, might engage in. And where this is increasingly sort of caught on camera. Um, and that it, it's sort of a, a Kind of, we got this picture the last two or three years, I think, into what is actually a really difficult problem for societies. How do you guarantee security, and how do you do that in a way that recognizes, you might say, the the equal political worth uh, and equal citizenship of, of everyone in a you know self governing republican democracy? And and I think America has sort of arrived on like an interesting historical path to its present day, where the, this book in the, in the first third of it tries to. Um, think about the theoretical justifications for widespread firearms ownership. You know, what are those historically? What are those in terms of political theory? Uh, what are those in terms of practical issues of, you know, both how do you stop crime on the street on a daily basis uh, and, and have a citizenry connected with, you know, the larger problems of security, but also how do you deal with extreme events with, uh, you know, unforeseen tail uh, black swan events, uh, breakdown in the face of natural disasters, and um, the sort of argument in the first part of the book is that uh, there, there's actually, uh, you know, a, a number of interesting historical reasons to recommend widespread firearms ownership. But then it raises all these empirical questions. And, and the second part of the book really is trying to deal with those. Like, what are the cost of firearms ownerships? You know, both in terms of, of crime, of misuse, of suicides. Uh, what are the benefits in terms of defensive gun use, uh, in terms of um, you know, training and responsibility in terms of developing capacities for uh, self-reliance in times of crisis. Uh, 
And, and, and for that, I'm really trying to engage uh, the best that's been written and said, uh, uh, you know, from every corner of the academic spectrum and say, what's the best data we have that can help us evaluate this and make sort of an overall public policy cost benefit evaluation of what are the net benefits of, of widespread gun ownership? What are the net costs? And then the last third of the book is, is thinking about what are, what are the real challenges on the horizon? So, there, you know, there's definitely the, you know, the political debates out there. But I, I kind of want to make both, you know, people on all sides of these debates a little uncomfortable and say, you know, where do I think uh, we have some really tough things, whether it be in better education uh, for gun users, gun owners, uh, you know, whether it be in, you know, maybe getting groups that didn't usually uh, historically own guns uh, involved in, in their, uh, you know, introduced to them and, and owning them and using them responsibly uh, to some of the hot button issues, everything from red flag laws to uh uh, ghost guns and some of these emerging public policy questions. So that's the last third of the book, and it tries to to suggest some possible frameworks for thinking through uh, some of these hot button policy debates we have. But that's essentially a book in three parts. Um, my major project and uh, trying to get that finished here in the next few months. So uh, that's uh, that's where I'm spending a lot of my time. But certainly, there's there's going to be more coming out of this survey. I think a lot of stuff I want to drill down on. Uh, with different groups, with different states to, to understand some of these patterns, particularly defensive patterns and uh, concealed carry patterns. Uh, I have some other work out there looking at concealed carry and its effect on crime over time um, that challenges some of the, uh, I think, some of the existing literature, but I think it does in a very rigorous and, and convincing way. Mm. Um, so this, this is all going into the book. And uh, hopefully when, when that's finally off my desk, I can come back here and talk about uh, its arguments in a bit more detail. Yeah, absolutely. We'll have to have you on. Again, once the book is closer to release, um, I'm sure it's something that will be very interesting to, to our audience here. Uh, you seem like you're taking the exact kind of approach that uh, that we try to take with our reporting. So uh, I, I assume that many people would appreciate that uh, and reading a more rigorous academic um, long form uh, uh, you know, a piece of work uh, would probably interest a lot of people. So. Uh, we'll have to have you back on at that point. Is there uh, is there a way that people can can follow you to keep keep up with the the new reports that uh, the new articles that you publish or or the progress on the book? That's a great question. I'm I'm terrible at all the social media stuff. Uh, probably the best way. So on SSRN, it's a way to that people put out academic papers, uh, sort of preprints before they're uh, under review or, or published in uh, in journals. And uh, that right now is the major form for, for releasing these academic papers. So if you look me up, William English uh, on SSRN, uh, this is a social science research network. And you can search, if you search National Firearms Survey, you'll probably get my uh, name to appear. And uh, in that space, uh, you should see in, in coming uh, months, uh, more papers appearing that are going to be uh, analysis of the survey results. And um, uh, at some point when, when book chapters are, you know, are ready, there'll, there'll be some teasers on there as well. Great. And we will, of course, keep uh, up to date with your writings as well over at the Reload. Um, and so people can uh, keep track of it there. We will we're obviously have several pieces on on this, what you've already published uh, out there. So uh, people should stick around and, and read more of that, because I think uh, there really is a lot of fascinating stuff inside of this survey. But thank you so much for joining us. Uh, and again, we'll have to have you back on 
uh, once you're closer to publish date on that book. Great. Well, thank you, Steve, for having me. Uh, great, great to have this conversation and uh, also keep up the great work just uh, in your reporting, because I think this is really, really important to, to have people out there that are trying to, uh, you know, get information out and the best information on all sides so that we can help uh, understand these issues on a timely basis. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for the weekly news update. Um, contributing writer Jake Fogelman here, as always, with Reload founder Stephen Gutowski. How are you this week, Steve? I'm doing pretty well. How are you doing, Jake? Doing all right. It's been a little bit of a long week, but hanging in there. Yeah. Um, Did you have a good uh, good holiday weekend, at least? Yeah, it's relaxing. Just got to c- catch up on some errands and, and hang out at home. Mostly my girlfriend was out of town, so it's kind of a bachelor's weekend for me. So pretty low key. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's not a good sign when you say it's been a long week on a short week. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's, I guess that's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but anyways, you have a, uh, a an interesting story this week about one of America's largest and most storied gun makers um, having kind of a rough go of it in terms of their uh, sales. Uh, if you want to tell us a little bit more about what, what you uncovered. Yeah, Smith & Wesson reported their quarterly earnings for uh, their first quarter of uh, this year, which ended in July, and sales were down 69%, uh, which is incredible. Um they went from $274.6 million in sales uh, the first quarter of 2021 to just $84.4 million in the first quarter of 2022. So, you know, that's a drop of $190 million, uh, which is which is insane. Um, but it, it shows you quite, quite a lot about what the state of the gun market today. Uh, you had two years of extremely hot gun sales. The market was just exploding, um, and now it's receding. It's going back down to where you might expect it to be. Uh, it, you know, in a normal non-pandemic, non-riot environment. Um, now that still, to be fair, is elevated from where it was before 2020, uh, and Smith and Wesson's financials reflect that but this is obviously the end of the end of a, a an era the end of a, a an incredible record-breaking surge for sure yeah no i think that's important context because obviously when you hear of a company uh declining revenue nearly 70 percent um obviously that might raise some red flags among some people but it is important to know that that is coming off of a absolute historic period of gun sales where at one point I believe they had something like a billion dollars in revenue because sales were just that high, that extreme. Um, yeah, they had the first billion dollar sales year for uh, any gun company in American history. Right. Uh, so, you know, coming off of that, they're now seeing their sales recede back down to uh, lower levels. And you've seen this trend. Uh, Ruger reported a similar drops in sales, although this was this drop was more severe than Ruger's. But those are the two American uh, publicly traded gun companies, by the way. So those are the two right. of the largest. Um, but, and you know, the other ones, we don't necessarily get their financials because they're not public companies. So, um, this is how you can judge how the industry is doing. And these are the only two you could potentially buy stakes in, right. Uh, as a normal investor on the market. Uh, so that, that's another reason why they, <laughs> what's happening with them matters quite a lot, but, um, <clears throat> but yeah, I mean, this is a trend that you've seen, coming for a while now, uh, really based on the FBI's background check numbers, which are the best analog for sales. They don't 
they don't tally one to one each gun sale. There's uh, several reasons why, you know, you're not capturing every gun sale with those FBI background check numbers. For instance, they're not done on all gun sales or uh, you can buy multiple guns on a single check or you could use a concealed carry license in place of a check. So there's a there's a lot of different reasons why the numbers don't match up exactly, but they are the best analog and they've been decreasing significantly since their peaks in 2020. They were down again last month from uh, 2021 uh, August to 2022 of August. And, um, but not by a ton, you know, they're still leveling out again above their pre-pandemic levels. So th this reflects that I would say. Right. And I believe there's still over a million a month, which is still relatively high considering historical trends. Um, one thing I, yeah. I will say, it'll be interesting to take a look at with revenue from companies like Smith & Wesson and Ruger is th these last quarterly earnings reports end in July. And you've seen sort of since then kind of a big assault weapons push in the political uh, mm -hmm. arena. And obviously, we're getting into midterm season, election season, which can also have an effect in gun sales. Obviously, it's not a presidential election, which tends to be the biggest drivers of, of gun sales. But still, you could see when assault things like assault weapons bans are in the realm of possibility, um, depending on how which way the election goes, you could see another possible spike again. So that will be, I think, one thing to, to keep in mind um, for maybe future earnings reports to see if maybe we see a, a slight rebound. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a trailing indicator. Right, because these are figures that ended in July, and so we don't see what happened, you know, in, in August and so far in September. Right, and there have been some political developments like the Sultan's ban passed in the House that you mentioned. Um, we'll we'll also have to track uh, where exactly that is having an impact, or how much of an impact it's having. Because uh, again, I mean, at the you know, there is some thought that perhaps uh, people who want to buy an AR-15 they were already motivated to do that the last two years before uh, sure. this assault has been passed. So whether it'll have the same kind of impact previous uh, you know, political fights have had, it, it remains to be seen. But you're right that there's their position for a potential rebound um, just based off the political environment. Um, and Smith & Wesson is fairly well positioned to take advantage of any sort of spike in demand that comes along. They, their uh, CFO, uh, Dion... Dina McPherson said, uh, quote, our balance sheet remains strong with $115 million of cash and no debt, and we expect to continue generating strong cash flow for the foreseeable future. So it's not as though Smith & Wesson is going out of business, as you might, right. uh, someone might worry with the numbers like this. The, the business is just coming back down from its all-time highs to what uh, may constitute a new normal. Uh, we've been talking about that for a while at the reload, you know, this new normal, where's the new normal? What's the new bottom? Uh, and so it seems we might be getting to that new bottom for gun sales. And again, they, it still remains elevated over the previous highs, um, you know, before 2020. So right. uh, it's not, it's not catastrophic news for the gun industry. It's just uh, something that was expected to happen and now is happening. You know, the, the surge can't last forever. Right, yeah, it's just returning to a more sustainable level of, of revenue, as you said. One thing I think, aside from the political development of the AR-15, this might be a little bit more speculative on my end, but maybe one more thing that you could see a possible rebound in is uh, the Supreme Court's gun carry decision. You mm. suddenly have 
seven or so states where more and more people will at least, in theory, be able to get carry permits. Um, Smith & Wesson sells plenty of guns that plenty of people choose to carry. I, for example, carry a Smith & Wesson gun for my personal everyday carry. So mm -hmm. you could see maybe a rebound in sales in some of these very populous states where suddenly people can get carry permits. So that might be one thing to keep an eye on as well. Yeah. I mean, the, the company, first off, they reported selling nearly uh, 60,000 handguns in that last quarter and 14,000 long guns of so rifles and shotguns. Uh, but of course, that was out of 128,000 handguns that they actually shipped right. and uh, 28,000 long guns. So, uh, you know, they, there's... They they report that a lot of their retailers were selling through inventory and and so um, you know they were replenishing stock, but uh, uh, they expect that to not be as much of a problem in the future. Uh, I would say that uh, you're right. Um, the Supreme Court's decision and the subsequent liberalization of gun carry laws throughout the country in some of the most populous states like California, New York, New Jersey, Maryland will probably have an impact long-term or more like mid-term, I would say, on on Smith & Wesson and, and these other gun makers. Uh, Smith & Wesson is a big player in that market, like you mentioned. It. I used to carry a Smith & Wesson. You carry one now. Uh, I might switch to the new Shield Plus, so we'll see. Uh, there's a lot of good options out there, of course, but, um, but they're certainly one of the most popular, and I think they will benefit eventually from that. The problem is, of course, as we've covered extensively it's probably there's been a lot of backlash to that ruling in those states and it's not really much easier to carry in most of them today than it right. was before the supreme court's ruling so i don't think that surge in sales is going to come until you know later on down the line and especially in a place like california right which has their uh, handgun roster right. that's extremely restrictive and you can't i don't believe you can buy a shield in California legally, which is I the, don't believe so the popular Smith and Wesson carry gun. So um, it, it might take a couple of years for that effect to actually be seen in their, in their balance sheets. So no, I wouldn't expect that's like, a good point. Yeah. Like it's not next, next quarter isn't going to see the effects of sure. that probably most likely maybe in Maryland where people can actually get permits at the moment, but, um, but probably not in California and New York, which is really where you'd, if you're if you're looking at financial gain, uh, you know, something that's going to matter to the balance sheet of a company like Smith and Wesson, you want to see a lot more people in California and New York being able right. to buy right the biggest uh, markets. Guns, yeah, they're, yeah, they're huge markets. So, um, but I, I think you're right. Long mid to long term, that probably will have an impact. And uh, so, you know, I think I don't know what the Smith and Wesson stock price is at right now. I don't, I don't know how the market was perceiving them, but uh, if, you know, if it goes too low, maybe, maybe then it would be a good investment opportunity because, you know, these numbers are really ugly for a single quarter, but it's unlikely that they're going to, you know, crash uh, completely out They're They're likely to have a pretty stable and, and secure financial footing moving forward. It's just not going to be the 2020 levels uh, that we saw. Right. No. Yeah. It's just like you said, it's coming back down to a sustainable level. It's, it's hard to sustain record pace for as long as they did. So exactly. So even with all those new gun owners that uh, were created in the last two years, uh, you know, it doesn't mean that they're going to be able to keep sales at 
uh, you know, insane levels that were never seen before. So uh, we'll, we'll keep an eye on it, though. We'll certainly be watching Smith & Wesson's um, <clears throat> earnings reports and Ruger's and and all the other indicators for gun sales in America and how things are going. Uh, so, you know, if you are interested in, in that aspect of uh, our reporting, you should absolutely head over to the reload.com and sign up for our free newsletter. Uh, and if you want a bit more in-depth analysis on these situations and on these stories, make sure you become a member. You'll get exclusive access to hundreds of pieces of analysis and, and exclusive stories that you can't find anywhere else. You'll also get this podcast a day early. Uh, and you'll get the chance to appear on the podcast. I think we have a, a member's uh, interview lined up for next week, actually. Uh, actually, the member of the the Liberal Gun Club, um, <laughs> which I spoke to uh, recently. Um, so uh, make sure you stick around for that one. But that could be you if, if you want to. Maybe a member of a different club, the Conservative Gun Club. I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> um, you feel free to reach out and uh, come on the show. We love to have on members and hear their stories uh, from all across all across the country and the political divide and, and all other kinds of dividing lines. So um, but that's it. That's all we got for this week. Uh, we'll see you guys again next week. <laughs>